Hello, welcome to Farmerama. We're very grateful for those of you that support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. This month, we hear about new food and farming media and how the two are becoming ever closer. We head to a medicinal CSA, and we end with a technology that may be part of our toolkit for a regenerative future. Jonathan Nunn is editor of Vittles, a food newsletter that particularly features writers and subjects not given space in traditional food writing. He talks us through setting up Vittles in 2020 and tells us about how his attendance at a meeting of farmers just outside London was inspiration for a season of the newsletter focusing on food production and producers. At the time, I think things were very, very unclear and lots of chefs were out of work. Lots of people um, within the food industry were suddenly not working. And my idea at the time was actually sort of focused around the, the lack of clarity about things. I had ideas about sort of platforming chefs out of work and doing recipes and having writers talk about produce shops in London. And I also had the vague idea that, like myself, when I started writing, that there would be a lot of people who were thinking about food writing, but had never kind of made the step into doing it. And so, so I had quite a, a small idea for like, almost like this kind of London community newsletter. And I think very quickly it turned into something bigger. There seemed to be much more for demand for it than I kind of thought there would be. And what I realised was that when I started writing, which was a few years ago, I was mainly writing about restaurants, actually exclusively about restaurants. And I started writing because I felt I wasn't seeing the London I knew and the London restaurant scene that I knew, which is mainly diasporic restaurants represented within the mainstream of British food media, even though British food media is so London-centric. I don't think I quite realised it, but I think what came up when I started Vittles is that within food writing, there are all these various different sectors. So restaurant writing being one of them, there's recipe writing, of course, there's agricultural writing. And it turned out that I think people had the same feeling with their own sectors. And suddenly Vittles became this space where I guess lots of these aspects of food writing, which have been sort of quite disparate to each other, could kind of interact and where people could produce the writing, which they kind of have always wanted to write about what they know. And so that kind of means connecting a lot of different worlds, which my editor at The Guardian one day said, there's this festival called Groundswell, which I think you'll be really interested in. And so I went up and it was a really incredible experience. There were farmers from all over the UK there and all of them either already heavily interested in regenerative agriculture or people who kind of heard about it and wanted to know more. And I think by day two, I was struck by the fact that I hadn't bumped into a food writer the entire time I'd been there. I was struck by a, a, a 
kind of conference that revolves around the very basis of food on agriculture there's there could be nothing more related to food than that that it wasn't being covered and and I don't say this to to say that I, I'm somehow better for being there and I wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for sort of a kind of stroke of luck and by yeah by the second day I realized that there was clearly also a blind spot in my own understanding of things I was quite enjoying being the least knowledgeable person in the room at sort of every any given point and also maybe a blind spot in Bittles itself and I thought it'd be a good challenge to make season five all about food production and producers I thought it would be a useful thing to sort of connect the back end of um of production with I guess the writing that Bittles has been been doing for the last sort of one and a half years and do it in a way which connects food production to a lot of the other topics which Vittles has been covering. The problem I came up with is that I think the way agriculture can be written about can be quite academic and dry and it's often being written for other people within the industry who understand technical terms. A lot of it is like incredible academic work, but it's not necessary for sort of mass consumption. And for me, the first thing that an article on Vittles has to do is kind of capture the reader. And Vittles is a newsletter. And if the reader hasn't been kind of captured by the first paragraph, they're not really going to read on. So I think that's been my challenge from an editorial point of view to make sure that the reader is even the casual reader well the food the casual reader but also even the food obsessed reader who might not really be interested in issues of production who might be interested more in consumption to make sure that reader comes with um with the writer i think if you ask most people what food writing is they would either point to the restaurant review um or recipe writing um, or kind of a sort of more frivolous type of lifestyle journalism. Most of those things centre around the consumption of food. And production has already, always been like a part of food writing. I, I mean, I'd go as far as to say that like the oldest piece of food writing I know would be something like Virgil's Georgics, and that is all about, about food production. But I think a lot of issues at the moment are making food production a much more influential force in food writing i think climate change the discourse around regenerative agriculture our um, consumption of meat and the way that veganism is is becoming a much more widespread thing i think issues about labor are all playing into this as well so i see the future of food writing is going to be much more focused on production and agriculture than it is now. I think there's certainly an increase in desire from the general public for this kind of um, for this kind of writing. But I, I also think there's a there's a demand from farmers themselves to see the issues that they live every day to be represented more in the mainstream of what we consider food writing. And in, in that sense, they're very similar to, I guess, my feelings when I started writing about food. Is that what I wanted to see was were the issues that I and the world that I 
um, kind of lived every day represented more. So in that sense, it, it feels like um, quite a similar thing. One thing I've learned from, um, I guess, publications like Farmerama and others is that farmers themselves are often much more articulate about the issues that the world faces and which agriculture faces and therefore um, which the entire food system faces than food writers often are. Personally, I would like to see more farmers within food writing spaces because I, I feel what happens most of the time is that you, you get a writer who kind of, someone like me who doesn't know what the, the real issues actually are, sort of coming in and writing about them. I, I would say that one thing I've learned from editing a publication is that I do believe that anyone can write something extremely interesting as long as they have an interest in perspective and, and that being a technically good writer actually counts for very little in the grand scheme of things. So as long as you have something meaningful to say, I think it always comes through. So I, I would like to see more farmers writing about things. And every time I do see a farmer writing about something, it's always fascinating. The Earthlight Herbs Cooperative is a medicinal herb farm, apothecary and plant nursery that began growing on an acre of land last year. We get introduced to the farm from Tiffany Landamore, one of the founding members. She talks to us about how they made use of online community calls during lockdown and introduces the idea of health sovereignty. We begin by asking her about her favourite herb. I'm really loving hyssop at the moment, actually. It's not one that I've ever worked with before this year. I've never grown it and I've never, I've never processed it before, but it's such a beautiful plant. It was really easy to grow from seed, which is always a bonus in my eyes. <laughs> when I planted it out, uh, it hardly got any slug damage. And then it grew, grew really quickly. It's this wonderful sort of vibrant green colour in the leaves and then this bright, bright purple flower. And the bees just go crazy for it. And it's sort of a really appropriate herb for this time that we're sort of experiencing on planet Earth at the moment because it's, um, it supports the respiratory system. So it's really useful in uh, things like viruses, coughs, colds. An ancient herb as well. I think it's mentioned in the Bible. So we were looking at different ways of producing revenue. We were looking at sort of producing our own um, remedies and thinking about how that's going to be sort of financially viable because of the time and effort that goes into the, not only the growing, but also the processing and designing the labels and then packing and posting. And it seemed like a CSA model was sort of our best bet, really, in terms of making it financially viable. But also, really, the main point was that we wanted to create a community. And the whole point of a CSA is community-supported agriculture. And we have been successful in creating a small little community here. And it's, it's growing daily, and it's really exciting to get to know local people and connect with people, also nationally, but focusing really on the local area around Somerset to try and really empower people to take control of their own health and learn how to make their own remedies. We sort of joke that actually, if we're successful with our vision and aim for the project, people won't need to buy our products in the end because they're going to be empowered to be able to make them at home. And that's really our aim is to create a community of, of sovereign individuals who know how to use the herbs that grow all around us, often like weeds in the, 
in the hedgerows or between the cracks in the pavements, know how to harvest them and know how to make their own medicine. We were really keen to offer our members um, a chance to connect. I mean, obviously, we set up the, the company during lockdown, so there was lots of restrictions happening at that point. And now things have opened up a bit. We are able to host um, in-person events, but some of our members are from other parts of the country, and we just wanted to create a sense of community amongst the members and offer them some education as well, because we're, we're fairly limited with what we can actually say about what the herbs do. Usually, if you're just a straight-up plant nursery, you can you can describe the what the plants are going to do in the body and how, um, what kind of things they might help you with. But because we're actually producing remedies as well, legally we're not allowed to say very much, which is a kind of a ridiculous thing about herbal medicine. <laughs> so we felt that hosting these online sessions not only builds community, but also gives people a chance to ask us questions about what to do with their tinctures when they've got them and sort of how it might help them and, and just give a little overview of, of what the herb's going to be doing, the actions on the body and the, the affinities with the different organ systems they have as well. So that was kind of our way around the sort of legal restrictions that are placed upon us by our system. <laughs> Food sovereignty is more well known and that's a massive movement. And we're, basically by using the term health sovereignty, we're aligning ourselves with this movement. But I think that health sovereignty encompasses a lot more than just food and herbs. Um, it's also about, you know, emotional, spiritual and physical well-being and all that that entails. Yeah, and we're just really keen to empower local people to take control of their health because it's all available to us and nature actually holds everything we need, I believe, to maintain our health uh, at a high level. I still buy my vegetables from a local organic veg box scheme because I don't really want to have to grow all my vegetables. You know, I grow a bit of, a bit of greens and salad and stuff, but I don't want to have to grow all my vegetables because that's not my interest. So same with the herbs I feel it's like we've got the expertise and the knowledge to be able to do it properly and make really really potent medicine for people but at the same time we're sort of offering education if you were interested in taking that up maybe not on such a large scale as what we're doing but sort of a little bit of foraging and also teaching you know your friends family children when you're going on your lovely walks around the hedgerows because like you say especially at this time of year the hedgerows are just literally dropping with medicine <laughs> I'll just explain a little bit more about the, what the, the CSA actually is. So you sign up, you can either pay in full for the whole year or you can do a monthly payment plan to spread the cost over the, over the year. With that, you get four boxes. So it's sort of every season, spring, um, summer, autumn, winter. We get a box for each of those. All of the plants that go into the remedies are either grown on our herb farm here um, without any chemical pesticides or herbicides we're not registered organic yet but we are basically organic or they're foraged ethically and um, sustainably from the local hedgerows and on the Somerset levels we aim to sort of include between five and seven different products in each box and then you get also access to the community sharing circles which are online at the moment and we also host a lot of community meetup days if you are local to the farm Up next, we're going to share about something that I can't always wrap my head around. I have moments of clarity and then it's gone. But it's something that I completely ignored for a long time, 
until a good friend convinced me to at least understand more about this, because he truly believes it holds some of the possibility for a more equitable and just future. I definitely think we're very far away from that at the moment, but I've begun to believe that there is potential. You may have heard about blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies that run via blockchain, such as Bitcoin. Well, in recent years, there has been a community building these tools with a regenerative mindset. The Regen Network are leading the way with this, and they've recently launched the Regen Ledger, or their blockchain. This ledger allows for transparency in all ecosystem credits that are awarded on it, as well as the transparent exchange of their Regen tokens, which is the associated cryptocurrency. Regen tokens are essentially like having a share in a company. They have both economic and governance value in this system, which is currently being stewarded by the Regen network. Alongside this, in order to create agreement about what should be considered valuable enough to award an ecosystem credit, they've created the Regen registry. Those who own Regen tokens have a say in the ecosystem standards on the Regen registry. So essentially, they have a say in what is a valuable ecosystem credit. Sorry, I realize that's a real, well, I find it a lot to get my head around at all times, um, and I hope it makes sense. And I am definitely not an expert in this by any means, so we're all learning together here, I'd say. And it's very early days still, um, but the technology does have the potential to enable a much larger and more diverse community of people to have a voice in the decision-making of what counts as valuable ecosystem work or what's worthy of carbon credits. Revathi Kalagala, Executive Director at the Regen Foundation, told us more. I think what's the opportunity here with Region Network is the ledger in its own way is meant to represent global ecological health um, and stewarded by global communities so that that's true. That means at any point, the ledger itself, because of all the data and the technology behind it and everything else that you put into it, the goal is to make sure that it can you know, meaningfully, impactfully, and as accurately as possible, reflect ecological health. Now, exactly what that means is going to be decided by the community. And because of blockchain, the community may not know each other, and that is perfectly okay. Um, and in this context, uh, one of the things that sets Region Network aside is the fact that 30% of the tokens are set aside to explicitly include underrepresented stakeholders, and that includes, you know, land stewards and land-based communities. That's similar to owning 30% of, of shares of a company, say, where any decision uh, that's made, uh, you, you can sort of, in some ways, make sure that the decision does not happen uh, without the voice of the land stewards and, uh, and other stakeholders. As Revathi said, as part of their commitment to this diversity of voices, the Region Network have mandated that 30% of their tokens will be owned by land stewards around the world, and they're being distributed through a grant program via the Region Foundation. We also spoke with Rebecca Harmon, who is Partnerships and Community Fund Manager at the Region Network. Owning a Region token 
it not only holds governance rights and potential economic value, like a share, but as there's no financial institution involved in blockchain transactions, your regen tokens can also earn you money because they can be used to help verify all the transactions on the ledger. This is what staking is, as far as I understand, which is something Rebecca refers to. Our community fund has gifted um, a lot of different projects throughout the world with funding and also tokens. So for there's a great project, um, it's called Coalition Carbon Trust, and they're doing some really great biochar work and uh, these um, smaller farming organizations. And they um, were given tokens. And those tokens, um, uh, they will, if they decide to stake them and participate in in blockchain in that way, then they will earn a percentage off of those. And those are, they can do whatever they want with those tokens. They can cash them out, they can trade them, they can do whatever they wish. The the goal here is to enable another income source for these farming communities and have that income source be um, not a function of their farming, but just something that they deserve to be able to participate in. Um, we see that as a as a digital divide that we want to um, bridge, and that's definitely a lot of our work is asking how do we draw land stewards, how do we draw producers into this strange crypto world um, and break down language barriers and build trust and create safe spaces to interact and communicate around this. Um, so it's very much about capacity, uh, but we see it as a huge potential if we can identify those bridges um, to get them involved. A lot of uh, communities here that we're also talking of are indigenous communities, communities who care about the land they live on and the conservation areas and so on and so forth. So the fact that they are gatekeepers and just the protectors of this land and these forests is something that Uh, they feel, and I agree, that the society must reward them with, which right now takes a long time to do because a big barrier is is the scientific rigor it takes to have something be recognized as a credit. A lot of what exists right now are these big, intimidating, long, rigorous sort of definition of what the credits are published by UN and uh, so on and so forth. And and it makes it slightly out of reach. This is a way in which we want to make it closer, accessible. And the way blockchain enables it is we also have a community decision-making process for deciding on what these credits will be and how to uh, put them on the chain, how to agree that um, we're going to say this is a valid methodology, Right. And I think that puts a lot of power back into the farmers and the land stewards' hands. Microsoft purchased carbon credits for the ecosystem services on the 10,000-hectare Wilmot Cattle Company ranch in Australia. And this was brokered by the Regen Network system. If you want to understand what some of the transparency looks like, uh, you can go to the Regen Network's website and see all the monitoring, all the transactions and agreements that have gone on in rewarding those credits. Um, And I was glad to see that while soil organic carbon does form a large part of the credit, they also have biodiversity monitoring, 
and animal welfare monitoring woven into it. Of course, the world of cryptocurrencies is extremely young, unpredictable, and making the rich richer in most cases at this moment in time. So I definitely don't want to oversell it or overpromise it as something uh, diverse and creating value for many at the moment. However, the Regen Network gives me some hope that we shouldn't ignore this as potentially being part of the toolkit for building a more regenerative future. The, the crypto frenzy is real. Uh, the hype is real. Um, it's a wave. And like all waves, it will, it will level out. And we're playing a long game. And we know that there's digital techno time, which moves at the speed of light. And then there's land time. And land time and the time it takes to create new topsoil and to generate change on a landscape is, is not at the same rate. And so I think that the, the question of why to get involved is, is it is a huge potential opportunity to change, um, change power dynamics, change economic dynamics, um, and, and point toward um, more of a livelihood margin for farmers. I think the, the distinction is that there's the whole crypto space, which is loud and noisy. And within that, there's more of a regenerative crypto space that feels, in my estimation, authentic. And they are in it to, because they care. Um, they're not in it to try to make a quick buck off of everyone. So I think it's it's good to differentiate between the whole space and then the corner of that space where we have really good dialogue about how all of this should be done um, and why should farmers participate when there's not hardly any time to be online anyways. A part of those conversations, we would invite anyone in the audience to come and join us on and be a part of and share your your thoughts and your input, but I do think that as loud as the crypto space can be, um, it's it's worthy of exploring the the regenerative crypto lane. Just the other day, I was talking to this leader of an indigenous community, um, and um, they they work with one of our partner organizations on the ground, and they're really frustrated. They're based in the Amazon uh, browser Ecuador, and they're really frustrated with the whole system of carbon credits because they have seen their land being bought for carbon offsets, but the company that bought the offsets um, is, is a mining company and uh, still had operations running in a different area where a lot of the native forest was lost because of the activities and these are more than forests to them like this is this is who they connect with and so on so it's very heartbreaking for them and that made them lose faith in the carbon market and so they approached us asking how this can change and how how the blockchain ecosystem can help. This is the vision, and these are the kinds of cases that makes us hold on to working on the project and where we are passionate about it as we are. There is the possibility, like I said, um, of defining the kind of credit where it goes beyond carbon. It looks at biodiversity, it looks at soil health, it looks at things that may really matter to you. 
And there is the possibility to also potentially taking a stance and saying, we, we do want to benefit from the carbon market, but we don't want the credits that we sell to go to a buyer who's going to use it for offsets, for example. And because this can be coded into the technology itself in a way that um, you can specify how it's verified, how you can make sure that the buyer you know, meets these conditions, it gives the communities a kind of power here, which I think is really lacking today um, with existing registry and definitions of the carbon market and credits and so on. And I think it's this, uh, this empowerment um, that's where the hopeful future lies. Um, there are huge parts of the crypto and blockchain boom that are, that are speculative and is filled with people who just want to, you know, um, how can we best trade so we can make money off of it? But there are genuine swaths of the bigger ecosystem that are in it because of the potential of using technology for true impact, where you can bring people together across the globe, regardless of different boundaries and so on. And regardless of the level of digital literacy they have, and still make sure that they have the power to make decisions um, and uh, steer the global ecosystem in terms of ecological health the way that they would like to do. And so like that indigenous community leader, um, the, hope, the hope is that the blockchain ecosystem is one that empowers people like them, right? This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose, and Olivia Oldham. A big thank you to the rest of the Farmerama team, Katie Revel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!